This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 14, Episode 15. Chase Boudin Recall Campaign. The Closing Arguments. Talking with Brooke Jenkins. San Francisco's District Attorney, Chase Boudin, faces a recall vote on June 7th. In today's episode, former Assistant District Attorney, Brooke Jenkins, will update us on the campaign. The latest polls show 60% plus of San Francisco voters poised to remove the district attorney from office, with barely 30% inclined to let him finish his term. The Yes on Recall campaign has waged a database strategy highlighting rising crime rates but low prosecutions. No on recall, however, has largely avoided Boudin's record while in office and painted the effort to remove the district attorney as nothing more than a Republican-inspired conspiracy. Yet in a city where fewer than 20% of voters are registered Republicans, that charge just doesn't resonate with voters who are 60% in favor of removing the district attorney. Joining us today to make the closing argument in favor of the recall is former Assistant District Attorney and Prosecutor Brooke Jenkins. Hi, Brooke, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim, and thank you for having me back again. My pleasure. Brooke, how did San Francisco's District Attorney, Chase Boudin, wind up facing an historic election recall? The voters of San Francisco have never, in 170 years, removed a district attorney in the middle of his term. So why has it come to this? Yes, and I I truly believe that is because when Chesa was elected, he made promises. He made promises to reform the system, but he implicitly explained to voters that he would maintain public safety as a priority. And I think that they have seen over the past two plus years that public safety has not been a priority for him, that he has been tone deaf to their cries for him to change what he's doing because they don't feel safe and they increasingly feel less safe. But yet he refutes them and he tells them that it's a part of their imagination and that he's doing everything that he can to promote public safety, yet the case examples that they're seeing and the data that they're seeing isn't supporting that. And so I just think that San Franciscans have become fed up with the state of things. It's one of the most expensive places in this country to live and people deserve to feel safe. And so they've said we've had enough. They have said we've had enough. And again, polls consistently are showing 60, 60 percent plus of voters willing to recall him. But let's come back to the two campaigns because the two campaigns, it's almost like a tale of two campaigns, a tale of two cities. The yes on the recall campaign, yes on H, which you're representing, seems to be very data-driven based on your campaign is quoting a lot of statistics, well-founded statistics, well-supported statistics. Yet Chase's campaign is very light, it seems to me, on statistics. Yet they're hiding behind this straw man of the whole recall being nothing more than a Republican con as they call it. Quite frankly, I think San Francisco voters find that very insulting. 
How do you explain such a wide disparity in these two views, these two different strategies of the campaign? Yes, I think we have wanted to be fair as a part of our campaign, and, and a part of that is being data-driven. We have tried to, to gain as many case examples as we can to demonstrate to the voters just how certain types of cases are being resolved. We have emphasized that it's one thing to talk in generality, but it's another thing to look at specifically what's happened within the DA's office. That's the difference. Chesa has tried to hide behind smoke screens, prosecution rates, which is something general that most people don't know specifically what that means, right? He tries to hide behind these notions that He's holding people accountable without specifically telling voters what that means and what that looks like. And I think he's relied upon crime data, despite not being willing to acknowledge that we're in a state where people just aren't reporting as much because they don't feel that there will be any consequences for what's happening out on the street. And so I think that that's a big part of the issue. Before we came on the air, you and I were discussing two cases where Chesa met with the family representatives of two victims. Could you share those two cases with us, Brooke? Yes. And through this campaign, I have come to get to know two families. One is the family of six-year-old Jace Young, who was murdered on July 4th of 2020 while watching fireworks in the Bayview District. The other is the are the parents of Emma Hunt, a black woman and mother who was murdered in the Tenderloin District last year and so or at the end of 2020. And one common theme between those two families is that Chesa, during meetings with them, seemed callous and cold, that he did not seem interested in truly hearing what they had to say about the cases. In an article published this morning in the San Francisco Chronicle, the mother of Jace Young said that Chesa Boudin didn't maintain eye contact with the family, that he kept twirling his pen and clearly didn't want to be there. She described how she grew so upset in the meeting that she left the room in tears and that he literally said nothing to her as he walked out. The family of Emma Hunt said that during the meeting with Chesa, he sat at the far end of the table, this very long conference table, away from away from them, that he, again, didn't maintain eye contact, barely said very many words, had a different representative speaking, and that he seemed disinterested in having the conversation. And I think it really speaks to the tone within the DA's office that the leader who is supposed to be the representative of victims in the criminal justice system seems to have no empathy with victims' families, even in murder cases, even in cases involving the murder of children. And, you know, Jim, I saw yesterday that Chesa Boudin tweeted out about the massacre, as I'll call it, in Uvalde, Texas, Mm -hmm. at Robb Elementary School. And he made this heartfelt appeal about gun violence and, and the deaths of these children. But yet what I know is that he didn't seem to even have compassion for a child murdered in San Francisco during his tenure as the district attorney. And so that is what people are expressing, is that he has no compassion, no empathy, and that they don't feel that the DA's office is an advocate for them at this time. It's it's shocking to think that anyone could meet with the bereaved parents of a child and not show some humanity, even though 
whatever his politics are, wherever somebody is on the political spectrum, to have to confront parents of a six-year-old child who was murdered and not to speak to them some, some warmth, some, it's, it's astonishing to me. Yes, Jim, and, and these are two parents of, of Jace Young that have been open about the fact that they even voted to elect Chase. They had faith in him becoming our district attorney to, to and what he spoke about as far as reforming the criminal justice system. But they have clearly seen how he has both failed at reform and done a disservice to victims who many of whom, most of whom are victims of color who come from disadvantaged neighborhoods in our city and don't have anyone else to to be a voice for them Mm -hmm. except the DA's office in situations like this. And these are the people that he is leaving behind and that he is disregarding. Now, let's come back to some of the some of the data. You shared some some data with me uh, yesterday, some important data points about his performance and performance in his office. Could you share that with our listeners again, to the point that your campaign is data driven? Could you share some of those data points uh, with us? Yes. And one of the one of the key things that has come out is his conviction data in drug dealing cases, particularly in cases involving the sale of fentanyl. What we have learned from data pulled, not even from Chase's office, because he hasn't been willing to give that over, but from data pulled from the San Francisco Superior Court system is that Chesa only secured three, three convictions in drug dealing cases for the entire year of 2021, where a defendant was required to plead to the actual conduct of selling drugs. Only in three cases did Mm -hmm. he require them to plead to the actual charge of, of what they were doing. Not a single one of those three cases involved the sale of fentanyl. Two were for meth and one was for heroin sales. And so Everyone else, I think it's 64% of those cases were resolved for misdemeanor accessory after the fact. And it really speaks to the way that he has failed to hold those who sell the most dangerous drug on our streets right now accountable. He's absolutely failed at it. And he's tried to cite as sort of the response to that that he is taking into consideration immigration consequences for many of these drug dealers. But that is not a new concept. We were taking that into account before Chase was elected, and we were not overwhelmingly providing misdemeanors to people, mm-hmm. to, to these offenders. And also, he is in a state of crisis right now in our city with fentanyl being a very deadly substance mm-hmm. that is causing rampant overdose deaths. And these offenders who are selling it are literally being given a slap on the wrist and released back out into the public to just go sell it again. Um, And that's the type of data that he has refused to provide, but that reporters, thankfully, are being able to track down. Now, Brooke, on the subject of fentanyl, did I read correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, but did I read correctly that in the past year we had 500 fentanyl-related deaths on the street of San Francisco? Yes, that is accurate. We've actually had more overdose deaths than we have had COVID deaths in San Francisco. It's it's astonishing. So 500 related fentanyl deaths on the street of San Francisco in the past year and not one fentanyl dealer conviction. Not one. Right. They, they've they've received convictions for misdemeanors, most of them, mm-hmm. not for the actual conduct of selling fentanyl. They've not been required to go to jail. They've not been required to even receive 
vocational training or any requirement to change the, the sort of status of their lives, right? If we're nobody thinks that the war on drugs was successful and that just locking people up for decades is going to fix this problem. But at the very least, you have to be propelling people into legal employment mm -hmm. if you're going to give them a break. And he's not even doing that. We are seeing we are seeing dealers in, in some of that case data set that was that was published who had three, four, even five cases of selling drugs receive a misdemeanor and, and a nice pat on the back as they walked out of the door. Now, Brooke, obviously, while you're no longer in the district attorney's office, you're talking all the time with fellow attorneys, with former members of the district attorney's office, perhaps current members of the district attorney's office, law enforcement. What is the, what is the sense? There must be a great sense of outrage. What is the explanation for this? Is there any explanation to be had? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot. Like, why is he doing these things? Why, you know, what is in it for him? And the the only answer that I can return back to is, is what I truly believe, which is that for his entire life, Chesa has been focused on the defendant. When his parents were incarcerated, mm -hmm. you can imagine the child who only wanted to get his parents out, sure. regardless of the crime that they committed. Naturally, he becomes a public defender. As a public defender, your only obligation is to your client and what's best for them. And I believe as the district attorney, he maintains a mindset of only what is best for the criminal defendant. And in his view, what is best is how fast can we get them released back out onto the street? It is not rehabilitation. It is not accountability. Those things don't factor into his equation. And so I think in large part, he still functions as a public defender mentally, even though his title is that of district attorney. Now, let's come back to the actual running of the office, the district attorney's office, because when you were there <laughs> under the former district attorney, the total complement of attorneys in that office, what was the full complement of attorneys in that office? It was around 130. Mm -hmm. And of course, since he came into office, how many of that original cohort of 130 are still there? About half. So he has fired eight attorneys, seven on his first day, another one after that. And over 50, I think 55 have resigned hmm. and left. Uh, we just had another resignation actually this week. And we had two resignations about uh, two weeks ago. So this number just continues to rise. Who is he replacing them with? Is he, or are there still a lot of vacancies or is he rapidly turning around and replacing them with, uh, with competent attorneys? He is rapidly replacing those who, who leave. However, only 19% of those new hires have any prosecution experience. We've done, we've looked at the data again, as you pointed out, we are not a campaign of generalities and, mm -hmm. of, and of just bold statements. We always want to be based in fact, and we have done the analysis and only 19% of his new hires to replace those 60 plus attorneys who are gone have prosecution experience. Almost 55% of his new hires come from defense backgrounds. Most, many of whom come from the San Francisco public defender's office where he used to work. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's an important statistic that I think that voters need to have when they weigh their decision to either to vote for the recall or vote against it. Only 19% of the new attorneys who are coming in have a prosecution background. Now, now tell us also from the bench, 
the judge community, what kind of feedback is coming from them? Because they have to deal with Chase's office, with these new attorneys who are coming in, only 19% of whom have a prosecutorial background. What kind of feedback is coming from the bench? So there have been um, multiple situations where judges have in open court admonished the DA's office for things that are happening. We had one judge who openly criticized Chase Boudin and, and the function of the office saying that he believed it what was going on was clear incompetence, that he felt like there was more of a priority or a prioritization of national policy than of actually doing the function of the job in the San Francisco courthouse. We also had another judge really admonish an attorney who was dismissing a case mid-trial, despite having enough proof in the judge's view to continue and finish the trial as just a clear abdication of their duties as assistant district attorneys and that this is clearly why the public is upset. And, you know, I think that's really telling when you have judges getting so frustrated that they are making these statements in open court. I think it really demonstrates just where we're at right now with the DA's office. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to property crime. Because we're, we're hearing this constantly, whether it's the rampant shoplifting or the breaking and entering, people not feeling safe in their own homes. Is his record any, any better on that score in prosecuting property crimes or not? No. And what we are seeing is an overwhelming surge in the cases that are being referred into diversion. And I just want to explain to your listeners, diversion mm-hmm. is often conflated with onerous rehabilitation programming. And that's actually not the case. Diversion is an actual program in the San Francisco Superior Court under California state law. And there's parental care diversion. There are other forms of diversion that simply require a defendant to undergo sort of out of custody class programming. So for parental care diversion, it's often maybe 15 parenting classes that you have to take. Sometimes it can require somebody to take 15 or so anger management classes um, or, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous classes. But these are classes, you know, that are an hour long or so. You're out of custody as you're completing them. And if you complete those 15 classes, you get a dismissal. And we've seen a a rise of about 20% or more in cases being referred to diversion under Chase Boudin. Even cases involving very, very violent crime, which never was sort of something that should have been sent into this type of more watered down programming. So I have a case that, you know, that I'm looking at of an armed carjacking where he wasn't even legally eligible for for diversion, put a gun to a woman's head to steal her car. Mm. And they had to actually go in, dismiss the armed carjacking and add in a lower level felony to make this man eligible for diversion and then send him in to go do his parenting classes. And that's it. He's out of custody, do a handful of classes and you have a dismissal as though this never happened. We're seeing that over and over again, misdemeanor pleas for no jail time at all, no rehabilitation requirement for these brazen robberies and burglaries of of small businesses and of even residential burglars who are receiving these extremely lenient plea deals. Mm -hmm. That's shocking to relate that case of a man who holds a gun to a woman's head in in a carjacking. And then that charge gets dropped for a lesser charge. I'm speechless. I'm astonished that such a thing could happen. 
what uh, you can sense my frustration yeah that's my frustration it, it, here it's alarming it's alarming it, it really is that he touts that there's accountability in san francisco but what's clear from his actions is that there is none there is none obviously chase abunian is an intelligent man he spent most of his or a good part of his legal career on the public defender side of the table. So he he didn't come to the district attorney's office with a prosecutorial background. We understand that. But I guess what I what I don't understand is let's come back to the reality of of managing a district attorney's office. On the one hand, I think everyone would agree that there's always room for improvement. There's always room for reform in the criminal justice system. But by the same token, justice needs to be done. Justice needs to be seen to be done. And a prosecutor is a prosecutor. The bad guys are, are going to be prosecuted and, you know, suffer the consequences. Under the previous district attorney, was the previous district attorney able to maintain something of a balance there between reform and actually doing the job of prosecuting the bad guys? Because it seems as though in this case, th- that's gotten completely out of whack. Yes. And I think the difference is that, and George Gascon, I have to give him credit, was very innovative in San Francisco about establishing new court programs to deal with the root causes of crime for our offenders. He he is who developed the young adult court program for our 18 to 25 year old offenders, <laughs> veterans court program that we have for those who have served our country and struggling with a number of issues and, and end up committing crimes. But one thing that I will say is that under his administration, we took violent crime very seriously. And it doesn't mean that we sent people to prison for lengthy periods of time in every case. Every, But what I will say is that each case was looked at individually for what crime that person had committed, what mm-hmm. their history was, and what we felt was appropriate in that given situation. Chesa has taken a one-size-fits-all approach to everyone. He has issued a number of blanket policies that we are ordered to follow, And not every offender can be treated the same way. Some fall into categories where those policies are not a good fit. He has not been able to become more flexible with that. He's removed prosecutorial discretion completely in a way that has been detrimental to public safety. He actually does not take violent crime seriously. And I think that's why I lasted in the office as long as I did is because I thought, you know, we're going to see some issues. We are seeing some issues with the way he's dealing with property crimes and, and, and things, but there's no way he's going to be lenient on our most dangerous and violent criminals, including murderers. Mm-hmm. And I was sadly mistaken, sadly mistaken. We are seeing him refuse, like in the Emma Hunt case that I mentioned, the parents were meeting with him because he's refused to charge that case, to charge her killers, despite her being shot in the back. The fatal shot that hits Emma Hunt is in her back. And all she had done was swing a milk crate at one of the shooters after after they confronted her. And so I think what's been clear is that he's not only lenient on property crime, but he has gone far afield in the way that we deal with with violent offenders. And that's why people in San Francisco are feeling the way that they are. Let's take that case of Emma Hunt, because certainly the facts as you've just laid them out seem seem very clear first of all she was shot in the back and it sounded if she swung a mill crate at them it sounds as though that was probably in self-defense why on earth wouldn't he charge them 
You know, he he gave the family the the reasoning that he considered the shooting to be in self-defense, given she had swung the milk crate. I honestly think that, again, Chasa hides behind rhetoric that he is really doing everything he can to be supportive of, of the black and Latino communities in San Francisco and and people of color. And I and I honestly think that he just has not been able to at all consider the victims again. It comes down to his consideration and his empathy for victims. And this was a young black woman who was in an area of town that's considered to be problematic. And I think that her life wasn't valued Mm -hmm. as much, to be quite frank. Let's just come back. Excuse me for interrupting. Let's just come back to the facts as you just laid them out. The the shooter tried to say it was in self-defense or and Chase seemed to accept that. But proportionality, a gun versus a milk crate, how can you possibly say that it's out of all proportion there? Uh, a loaded gun versus a milk crate? The worst that could happen to you with a milk crate is maybe a bruise or a cut or something like that. But a gun, a loaded gun, is a lethal weapon. How could, even right. even to me as a, as a non-attorney, that the proportionality of the two two sides is way out of whack. Absolutely. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head that self-defense is not being allowed to use lethal force in response to something that is doesn't imminently endanger your yes. life. And the other thing that the family pointed out is that this, this crime is on video and that Emma was shot multiple times. She was shot immediately after swinging the milk crate. It was it was a, a soft tissue wound that was not fatal. She then turns to run away. She mm-hmm. retreats. She literally turns to run away. She's shot then again as she's turning. And then the third and fatal shot, which according to their reading of the medical examiner's report, is the one that shoots her in the back when she's turned around running away. Mm-hmm. And so no one can understand the mentality or the thought process of somebody saying that this shooting was was in self-defense at all. It's mind-boggling. Well, Brooke, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, and you've covered some some very important issues here and very very moving issues that probably many voters and certainly listeners haven't heard before. As we come to the end of this podcast, could you sum up all that you've stated here today and that you've on the campaign trail for the last six or seven months that you've been talking about, because this is the opportunity to, to speak to the voters, to speak to listeners. And you've certainly done it here in the podcast, but please give us your summation. Yes. And I, I just want to make clear that this is a united effort. It's a democratic led effort that is united across the spectrum of party where we simply want a district attorney who can balance the interests of public safety and victims' rights with the necessary reforms that our system does in fact need. We are not an anti-reform campaign. We are not a that simply wants to go back to tough on crime. We want a balanced approach to crime. And Chesa has been incompetent at his job. He's refused to prioritize public safety. He's refused to show any advocacy or empathy for victims of crime. To the contrary, he they have been ignored and disregarded. And at the end of the day, we just want to see a competent district attorney in office. Not only has almost half of the number of attorneys left the office or been fired, but we've had 20 of 41 victim advocates leave. The head of our victim services unit, the division chief, 
as well as numerous advocates, some of which Chesa even hired, have left that office because they have been telling the story that the DA's office is no longer serving the interests of victims. And that's what came out today in a San Francisco Chronicle article. And I think that's very telling. The district attorney has a job and the job is to be an advocate for victims and for the community in the criminal justice system while balancing those interests with the rights of a defendant. Chesa has failed to do that. And that is why he must be recalled. Well, Brooke, I think you've stated your case very eloquently and forcefully. You have 10, 11 days of the campaign left, and I guess it's going to be a very busy week and a half for you. Yes, yes. We've got to get people to vote. So I just urge your listeners. I know that, you know, we're in a new time where the, the ballot the ballots come in the mail and many for many of us they've been sitting on our dinner tables or our kitchen counters. I just really urge your listeners to fill out those forms and get them in the mail or drop them off at the, one of those ballot boxes so that their voice can be counted in this. Well, Brooke, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Really appreciate your your insights, your experience, and the data that you shared with us today and look forward to following up with you after June 7th. Yes. And thank you again so much for having me on. I think we all just want the best for San Francisco. I couldn't agree more, Brooke. And once again, we will we'll be following this closely and look forward to getting your take after June 7th when we know the results. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Brooke. And for my listeners, as the San Francisco experience marks its second anniversary, thank you for listening. We are featured on 19 podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, among others, with listeners in 50 countries and all 50 states. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.